the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. Sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and long form stories than The Athletic. Download the app, personalize it with your favorite teams and leagues, and get ad free exclusive content at your fingertips. Visit theathletic.com slash spot track, S P O T R A C, for 40% off your first year subscription today. My name is Mike Gennetti. It's a two guest show. First off, from Sportico, she's the senior sports business writer, Emily Karen, back on the show for an appearance to talk about some women's sports, the WNBA championship, and how that rated and how that uh, kind of burst financially this year in their 25th anniversary. And we, we break down college coaching buyouts, what's going to happen with some of these other women's sports that have really taken steps forwards, and just a good conversation with her as usual. And then the back end, Scott Allen joins the show. We're going to break down some of these rookie extensions that didn't didn't happen in the NBA and flip the switch to the NHL for a little bit. Uh, off-season spending, teams that are spending, that aren't spending, Sportico valuations for NHL franchises and how those teams specifically are spending payroll this year and why that's a problem. And a bunch more facts and figures from the NHL upcoming season here with Scott on the back end of this show. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is brought to you by Balance Bridge Funding, providing cost-friendly capital solutions to professional athletes since 2015. Balance Bridge has dedicated professionals who understand the industry and can customize a repayment plan catered to your client's situation and financial objectives. Borrow wisely, avoid broker fees, and there's no penalties if you pay it back early. Whether your client is currently under contract and needs a bridge against guaranteed earnings, a free agent looking to invest, or looking to borrow for any other reason, let Balanced Bridge take a look, provide a solution, and be a resource for you today. Visit balancedbridge.com. All right, it's been a few weeks, I guess, since we've had her, but uh, good to have you back, Emily Karen from Sportico. What's been happening in the world of women's sports? I know you've been deep into this. We just had a WNBA championship, a good one, a nice storyline. I guess let's start there, Em. What's the uh, takeaway from the season? you know, from a, I guess, from a basketball standpoint, from a, a marketing standpoint, and certainly from a television rating standpoint. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Um, you are correct. It, it, uh, it's been a good season. It's been um, definitely some storylines to sell. I think, you know, the, the bubble season, the WNBA got a lot of attention for its social activism, for the work that the players were doing, um, you know, in, in promoting change and recognizing, you know, some of the movements that were going on, right? Black Lives Matter was a central part of that, that season. But to be honest, I don't know that people talked about the actual basketball a ton. And I think we saw that kind of become the focus again this season. Um, and it definitely paid off. I mean, the league, it was the league's 25th season. It was so, you know, they kind of did this season long anniversary campaign celebration type thing. And they brought on some pretty key sponsors um, through that run, you know, Google being probably the biggest name there. They also brought on a partnership with Dick's Sporting Goods, which is going to be huge in terms of helping to get more merchandise uh, into the fans of hands and also generate some additional revenue there. Um, but, in, you know, we saw all that culminate with the playoffs and historically the playoffs are where the WNBA sees its biggest jumps in viewership. If you actually look at the numbers over the last, you know, 10 seasons or so, the regular season viewership tends to remain pretty stagnant. Um, and then, you know, postseason we see decent spikes. And this season, you know, I think bodes well for the league in that they saw jumps in their regular season viewership, albeit over 2020 when the numbers were down as a whole. But even if you compare those to 2019, there was still some healthy growth. And then you saw even bigger jumps during the postseason. Um, you know, game two, which ended up going into overtime, you know, peaked at a million viewers, which is a very, very promising number for the league. Um, game three, unfortunately, which was a blowout, did not do them uh, tons of favors in terms of audience. But, you know, overall as a whole, the, the series did very well. Great. Um, what's, this, what's the outlook with their TV situation? Because it feels like it's consistent now. It feels like I know where to go for this league. You know, it's good to have certainly ESPN taking the ownership of the finals, as you mentioned there, is it a long-term agreement? Is something we can kind of rely on every year? Because I feel like that's the biggest issue right now with all of sports. You know, 
I'm a, I'm a big English soccer guy. I'm bouncing around three <laughs> different elements just like, you know, just on a Saturday morning just to find the next game. So uh, it feels like there's a consistency with this sport, which I think is crucial right now. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think, you know, ESPN has been a great partner to the league this season as part of their 25th anniversary campaign. They, you know, pledged to put 25 games on, you know, sort of primetime TV, whether that was ESPN or um, ABC. And and some of those games ended up getting bumped to ESPN2. We even saw that during the playoffs. Game 3 got pushed to ESPN2, which, you know, you still see that stuff. And and as a fan, but also as someone who covers the sport, is that is still a little frustrating, right? You see the an NBA final or WNBA finals game getting bumped because of an NBA preseason game, and it's just you know still telling of where I think where the industry is, um, especially because those viewership numbers were trending upwards. But I think as the league looks to renegotiate these deals, right, we're talking some of them expiring in 2022 and them needing to figure out what comes next. I think they will certainly be looking um, or even, you know, fielding offers about longer term partnerships. You know, I don't know if that's going to be, you know, the kind of 10 or 12 year deals we see perhaps in college football or with the NFL, but I do think it will be something um, significant, you know, whether that's a, you know, five year deal or whatnot. Um, We just saw the NWSL did a three year deal. So I imagine, you know, five years plus is probably in the cards for, the WNBA. Um, but I think what's also interesting is, right, you know, you saw a partner like Amazon Prime come on partway through this season to start picking up some of those additional games. So I think you'll see more of that in their next deal where, yes, you may be bouncing around between CBS and ESPN and ABC and perhaps Amazon Prime. But, you know, if you think about where women's sports were, you know, five years ago, you were sometimes looking on, you know, obscure sites. You were looking on, you know, ESPN three, but the only, only the streaming version, right? So well, Twitch for NWSL, still, right? It's frustrating. Oh yeah, they're uh, Twitch is a big partner for them, and Twitch has really stepped up for yeah. a lot of you know women's sports leagues in this country. But you know, not many fans are familiar with Twitch or how the platform works or how to find games there. And so, if you at least get these games on you know, solid linear television channels, but then also on platforms that are accessible to people like Amazon Prime. I think that's definitely a step forward. Let's stick with women's sports here for a bit. You've uh, you kind of unveiled the Athletes Unlimited situation to us about a year ago, maybe two years ago now. And uh, I've been keeping an eye on it. I, I, I catch it on, on random networks, you know, East Coast evenings here quite a lot in terms of softball and volleyball. It's expanding. It's growing. Does that mean it's it's been successful at least out of the gate here? The, I mean, the pandemic had to have, you know, a negative effect on it. But it seems like that they've rebounded and, and that basketball is going to be the next wave, which should, and not so much compete with the WNBA, right? But more or less maybe facilitate that league. You know, what's interesting is I actually think Athletes Unlimited was uniquely positioned to launch during the pandemic yeah. because their seasons, the you know. <laughs> Right. Their seasons are a bubble by default, right? It's five weeks for every sport. They're very condensed. Um, It's five weeks in one location. And so, yes, 2020 definitely impacted them in that they had to start their, you know, first leagues without fans, which is not ideal. Um, You know, even if you're only playing in a single site, you're expecting fans to be there, not only from a ticketing revenues perspective, but just from generating buzz, generating interest. You know, I think there's a consensus and people have, talked about this especially in in light of the pandemic as fans have started to return to games that you know broadcasting a game without fans in the stands is a very different experience for the television consumer you know the product looks different for those watching at home and feels different um so that was definitely a a hiccup for them that they had to navigate through but they clearly did it um you know they're now starting to talk to a lot of their partners last year signed on for a single sport you know they'll say you know hey we'll sponsor softball and see how it goes or, hey, we'll pick up your you know, volleyball TV rights and see how it goes. And I think what the league is starting to see now is some of those partners return and say, hey, we'll do the full year. So I don't know that they're at the point yet of you know, finding enough success or you know, having enough proof of concept, maybe that's a better way to put it, that you know, leagues are coming on and saying, we want to do a three-year deal with you guys. But even the fact that those contracts are starting to get extended, you know, partners and sponsors are coming in and saying, We'll do the whole year, which at this point, you know, will encompass, I guess if you do 2021, right, it's going to encompass their first ever basketball season. It's going to encompass another volleyball season, another lacrosse season, and then another 
softball season. So you're going to get four sports in there, um, which I think is a great sign. And then, yes, so that that basketball season is their their latest addition. I think it's a really interesting approach. They're doing it during the WNBA offseason. Right? WNBA plays during the summer months. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and this will go, you know, end of January into February leading into their volleyball season. And I think, you know, you saw them announce with the signing of some, you know, retired WNBA players, you know, and some active WNBA players as well. Um, and the goal is clearly, you know, a lot of these athletes go overseas during the off season, right? You know, they need to make additional money. Salaries have not always been, you know, super sustainable in, in women's sports leagues in the U.S. Um, you even saw, you know, last week during the WNBA finals, Diana Taurasi is, you know, joking, thanking her Russian friends because she had the money to, you know, charter a plane home from her game to uh, just be there for the birth of her, her child. Because, you know, the extra money that she made in the off season is, you know, not necessarily comparable to the opportunities they have here, right? There's a lot of money for these athletes to be made, to be made overseas. Um, and I, I think Athletes Unlimited is trying to combat a little of that, right? Keep some of these stars in the States, keep them on television channels that, you know, their current fans can watch. And I think there's, you know, an, a sense that ba women's basketball has a strong enough audience and is a big enough sport in the U.S. that it could kind of be a, a jump for for Athletes Unlimited. You know, it could be one of those things where they really take it up a notch and their, their league, you know, kind of elevates in a way that perhaps some of the sports that they've started with haven't necessarily done just because the audience is not as big. So I've, I've been reluctant to ask you this question because I've, I've wondered really how deep you've dived, you know, kind of dove on this whole element, but you know, it's marketing. This thing is probably difficult. And here's the angle I want to take on this, Emily, for those of you who don't know out there, what this, what this system does, this athletes unlimited system is, is basically they take their big name players in each of these sports and make them captains, right? And it's sort of backyard sports where every week these captains draft a new team and go out and play ball whether it's lacrosse, volleyballs, you know, and expanding sports here. Does that make it hard to market? Because merchandising is basically irrelevant at this point, right? I mean, what do you do with that in terms of trying to push this out to a Dick Sporting Goods or any sort of fanatic situation? Isn't there a limit to where this can go? Yeah, I think so. What, you know, what you'll see is that the gear that they are selling is like a very standard Athletes Unlimited jersey. So Swag, it's like basically. one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, even if you're talking about, you know, getting some jerseys for these the basketball season, right. It's going to be one colorway just with different names on it because each of the players, you know, is going to be hypothetically playing in a different Jersey in a different color every week during the season when they get drafted by a new team. Right. And at the end, you're going to have kind of an individual player winner as opposed to a team winner. Um, so it's a very different concept in that way for sure. And I think, you know, the, the downside I would say is like something that people enjoy about jerseys is like repping their particular team, right? Like, yes, they like to represent the athletes that they love the most and are the biggest fans of. But a lot of the times it's like, you know, you like the retro Jersey, you know, of the warriors or, you know, you, you want to get Steph's all-star Jersey or whatever it is in particular. And that is missing with athletes unlimited. Um, so I think they're really banking on the connection between the athlete and the or the, the the fan and the individual athlete, and we have seen you know you know several studies lately have shown that especially younger generations connect more to individual athletes and storylines than they do to teams. Um, but this is for sure a giant leap of faith on those studies. I I get it though, right? I mean, we're in the social world where you're looking to follow a one-to-one -one relationship. You're not necessarily following the Warriors on Instagram, right? <laughs> you're following right. Steph. So I understand this because, right, the more you talk there, the more this is a player-centric situation. So somebody who's on an, on a WNBA offseason, maybe not a big-name player, can come here and not only be great, but get more name recognition because that's really what this league is all about is name recognition. It's not about the team. The team is literally the last name of somebody. So I can get <laughs> right. that. I can get that from a player empowerment sort of standpoint, which is certainly where we're going with more of these sports. All right, real quick. Well, I think the other, uh, ahead, yeah. the other only other thing I'll add there too is, you know, athletes unlimited has made a point of making a ton of content 
um, around the individual players. And they have these sort of like membership tiers on their website where like you can be a pro member and you pay X amount of money a month or per year. And you get not only access to, you know, some of the, the interviews with them on the field and behind the scenes, but some of it is like educational tutorials, you know, of these players talking about, you know, what, how they mentally prepare for a big game or, you know, how they fix their, you know, in softball, they were doing some stuff, you know, how they fix their pitch. So I think, you know, they're also banking on, you know, less merchandise sales and more perhaps these individuals drawing in audiences for some of that behind the scenes content. And the younger generation, something yeah. these major professional leagues have been struggling with for almost two decades now, to be honest. So yeah, I get yeah. it. It's different. Different generally works right now. So I, I give them a lot of credit for being where they are right now. Uh, let's flip over to the men and and not so much the pros, but sort of the, uh, the pre-pros, right? With these NBA academies, there's three or four real decent options now. I know they're all getting, you know, well-funded, well put together, and they're getting ready for a situation that's basically going to take college basketball down. Let's be perfectly honest about what this is. The NBA wants to supersede that process for the most part, alleviate the one and dones, and get them into a system where they can more, more or less control their futures, their destinies. You know, everybody makes a little bit of money in the process, and then they can groom these superstars to be ready at age 19, 20 in their system. How's it going? I, I know you've done some work on the overtime elites. There's, there's a few of these out there. And then the G League specifically is expanding as well. What's your sense generally on, on how this is, when, when this is going to become kind of mainstream? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think people panicked a little bit when I think it was, you know, last, must have been the recruiting, recruiting class of 2020. So the kids who were committing in 2019, right, to go play in 2020, um, a number of those kids, you know, you saw Jalen Green as one of them, decided not to go to college um, and decided to go one of these alternative options. And the G League really picked off a number of those in, you know, that single recruiting class, which I think people kind of were like, whoa, what's happening here? And, you know, maybe let's take a step back and figure out what's going on. But I think you kind of, you know, nailed it on the head where, I don't know that this is going to take down college basketball in its entirety as people are afraid. I think what it's going to do is redirect those one and nuns for the most part. But if you look at college basketball and you look at the teams who have been successful, you know, you look at a Virginia, um, you know, I'm biased because it's my alma mater, or you look at, you know, a Gonzaga, a lot of teams in college basketball are not necessarily built on one and nuns. Yes, the Dukes, the Kentuckys of the world for sure are. Um, and their dynamics may look a lot different in the future, but there are players who definitely still go to college who want, you know, several years to develop, you know, who want to be part of the system and want someone to invest in making them better. And there are kids who go, you know, who want a degree and, you know, as archaic as that sounds, they, you know, especially in, a, you know, some of these sports where, you know, you're not talking about college football you know, a lot of kids who go to the NBA, if you end up on a G League team, you're not making millions of dollars, you know, your first couple of years. So who knows what that path necessarily looks like for you. Um, so I think there is definitely still a place for college basketball. Do I think some of the top talent will definitely not be part of that? For sure. Um, you know, and like you said, you're seeing a number of these leagues pop up and there's opportunities for these athletes to make money from the jump. You know, the G League program was paying athletes, you know, their their athletes $500,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Like that's some serious money you're talking about, especially when you're an 18, 19, 20-year-old kid. And even in light of NIL, that's probably more than they're making, you know, through NIL endorsement deals if they were to go the college route. But beyond that, you know, they don't have the academic course load that they have to juggle. You know, they really have to focus on mm-hmm. being a, a pre-professional athlete and making money and doing endorsement deals. Whereas if you're in college, you have to do all of that while also going to class and being a student and meeting all of those requirements. Um, you know, so for the kids who really are only in college to get that one year of experience under their belts and to become eligible for the draft, I think you will see a departure. And like you said, these leagues that are popping up, you know, especially you look at Overtime Elite, they're so well-funded that they have money to give these players to get them in the, in the door. You know, anyone who might be on the fence, you know, they have the capital to to make it, you know, financially motivated for them to go. So it'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds. I think, you know, Overtime Elite, I think, is holding, you know, their first, you know, draft or, or pro day or whatever they're calling it. Um, 
so the the first steps are happening. I think it's just going to be a matter of you know how how fans receive those types of leagues and what sort of um, you know ecosystem they're going to be able to create around them, right? Because you can have all the capital you want to get started, and so you know put cash in these players' pockets to get them to come. But if no one's watching and no one's paying attention, then you know the whole ecosystem falls apart. Yeah, and there's a couple of players that you know just started their careers in the NBA, Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga, of course, who there's a lot weighing on their shoulders right now, right? If they're great, oh, yeah. especially in the first two seasons, you know, they're, you know, one's on a good team, one's on a bad team. So, you know, different situations, but, but if they're great, that is the ultimate marketing pitch for this G league ignite, right? Isn't it, aren't we getting to the point though, Emily, where it's probably, it probably makes more sense for John Calipari to coach this G league ignite team than it does the Kentucky Wildcats. Uh, that's a, that's a, a, th- a question I think we're going to have to to wait and see the answer for a little bit. Like I said, I think you're going to have to see how these leagues start to take off. Yeah, going to the G League team where you're doing this development, you know, where you're specifically coaching this development team, you definitely get, you know, th- there's definitely a, an incentive to go do that, right? You're going to get some talent who's going to be fed directly to the NBA. You're going to get to really help them develop. But you're also only going to have, you know, one year to do it from in most of these cases. And some of these coaches, I think, are aware that, like, there are players you recruit who need more than a year before they're ready. So if you're a coach who cares about, you know, really getting them on to the next level, you may be a bit more limited, um, you know, in what you do because you could have players who come to the G League who are, you know, great in high school and really stand out and they get to the G League and they're playing against, you know, people who are all professionals at that point. And maybe it becomes apparent that they need a little more time and you may be more limited in what you can do with them. Makes sense. It's fascinating. It's coming. There's no question it's coming. I mean, it's here oh, yeah. already, yeah, but yeah. I think it's going to formalize more. I do think we're going to get to a point where the G League is, is a true minor league system for the NBA within the next five years. But when, you know, when this new CBA comes around, all the teams that are kind of against that right now are going to have to kind of fall into place, I think. So there's going to be a real formalized system in men's basketball for this. Hey, real quick, do you have anything to say about this Don Staley contract in, in women's college basketball? Because we're talking about professional women's sports and certainly men's college basketball, but I feel like women's college basketball could win the day in all of this conversation because it seems like that might be the strongest pipeline going in terms of their development. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, first of all, I think her, I mean, her contract is an awesome sign for... Right not only for, you know, female coaches and coaches of women's sports in college athletics, but also just for the, you know, the perception of the value of women's sports, right? South Carolina has to truly believe that the program that Staley is running is worth the money that they're paying her, you know, and that it's worth the investment and that the, you know, the players it brings to its campus and the attention it receives clearly is in a very healthy spot. Um, for them to be willing to grant her that contract. And I think it's fascinating how, you know, people are are looking at Coach O getting this $17 million buyout, right, from LSU. From LSU, he'll no longer be coaching the football team at the, uh, you know, for, for the 2022 campaign. You know, we're talking about him getting a $17 million buyout and people aren't really batting an eye. But then Don Staley is getting a contract that's actually not worth that much more than that, you know, over a similar span of time. And people are like, oh, my gosh, this is historic. And I just think it goes to show kind of, you know, the discrepancies in in coaching pay that we've long seen in college athletics, where, you know, someone getting paid that much to leave is not noteworthy. But someone getting paid that much to stay is incredibly noteworthy, um, you know, on the women's side. But, you know, I think you said it where, you know, there's a very healthy pipeline. Uh, you know, women's college basketball is only continuing to grow. We saw that with March Madness. Hopefully we'll see it even more this upcoming year when they're actually able to use those March Madness logos, um, you know, and receive some additional sponsor dollars and, and really brand themselves as part of the tournament. Um, but women's college basketball is in an incredibly healthy spot. It's really important for them to keep the money in the conversation. I know I'm biased yeah. in saying that out loud, <laughs> doing what I do for a living. But people, yeah. people open <laughs> their eyes and their ears when they see the numbers. They just do. It's just a fact yeah. of life. And I, I understand that, you know, with the WNBA, I'll throw out that the payrolls are $1.3 million and I'll get a lot of, you know, flack for that. But people who follow the sport know it's come a heck of a long way in the last 10 years. And it's only going to get better. This last CBA was a really big step forward for women's basketball. So 
we were, we've kind of encapsulated women's basketball at a whole here, right? There's three major pipelines for it. Seems like it's as healthy as it could be. I guess we have to go, you know, to spin negative to finish off here. You mentioned the Ed Orgeron buyout. You and I have talked buyouts before. It's such a a bad taste in my mouth because it is such a, uh, God, it's such an American thing right now, isn't it? There's just so much being wasted right now. And and in college sports, this is not getting better. We we haven't talked about this probably in about a year, you and I, Emily, and it hasn't gotten better. Um, We're going to see more firings in college football over the next couple of weeks. That's just how it works in November. What is this situation right now? How, how is this still a thing? Now, I, you know, I can, I can sort of give the SEC a pass because they are just their own monster. If they want to throw around their own money, they have so much of it. Do what you have to do. But we're seeing, you know, mid-major conference teams with just as big buyouts because they have to overpay to get guys in, fully guarantee with all these benefits and, and, and you know, accessories built into these things. And then in a year and a half, it's all over. How, how is this going to stop? Is it going to stop? You know, I think a lot of folks were really expecting 2020 yeah. to be the year that, that sort of self-corrected, right? When you were looking at, you know, there were conversations of coaches taking salary reductions and perhaps being willing to renegotiate parts of their contract because of the pandemic, putting such financial pressure on their athletic departments. Um, but I don't think that ultimately happened. And so now you look at the landscape and you're like, okay, well, if a global pandemic that wreaked havoc on the, you know, finances of athletic departments did not change the buyout landscape at all, like what will? And I don't know that anyone has the answer to that right now, um, but it's it's increasingly unsustainable. You pointed out, you know, several of the reasons why, but I also think it just, it does a disservice to the athletes, right? If you're LSU and you have $17 million to be just giving away, over the next, you know, five years or four years, whatever it's going to be, he's going to be getting paid out through 2025. You know, part of me is like, you know, what could that $17 million be doing for your athletes on campus? You know, what sort of, you know, now, especially in light of the Austin case, you can give athletes, you know, scholarships that encompass not just their tuition. You know, what sort of extra money could you be putting in the pockets of those athletes to help them out? but not even putting in their pockets, but what extra money could you be investing into their, That's right. their programs and their facilities and their, you know, support systems or the, the benefits offered to them, you know, or even staffers. Like, I think this gets very overlooked. Like, you know, athletic directors themselves make a, a very, you know, good salary, but so many of people who work in their athletic departments do not. You look at the majority of, you know, if you're an assistant media director, if you're, you know, working in, you know, an assistant director of, you know, fundraising or whatnot, a lot of those folks are making, you know, $30,000, $40,000, which is a, is a decent, you know, you're ma- still making a, a salary and you're making a living wage, but you're, you know, in a lot of these markets, you know, if you're at Georgetown University, you know, here in Washington, D.C., that's not a, a, a lot to live on, you know, in the area, if you're at St. John's in New York. And I just, you know, part of me is just, you know, I guess, you know, if you look at some of the SEC markets, maybe it's a different feel, but part of me is just like, you could be investing this money in your athletes, in your staff, in your personnel, in the, you know, the, the, the overall experience within your athletic department, but instead it's just getting thrown away to a coach who's not going to be coaching your team at all. I guess here's my, here's my take on it. Like even in the SEC, let, let's, let's start with LSU here, because this is obviously the story we're, we're, you know, that brought us here. The SEC is so big, so big. You and I have talked. They're going to break off. They're going to be their own thing. They're going to be their own business entity. They're going to make just as much money, if not more, doing their own thing. But how is that not the power grab? Why do they have to fully guarantee Ed Orgeron's contract with a gigantic buyout? That's a great question. Do do you understand what I'm saying? Like, Why does that facility need to do so much to bring in a coach they think is the coach if... I mean, the turnovers three, four years. Anybody not named Nick, named Nick Saban is gone in three, four years across the entire country. That's just how this works. So why do the most powerful schools in college sports have to guarantee the contracts? I don't understand that. It makes no sense to me. You should be in control. You should be able to say, no, 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 you're coming here. We'll pay you four or five million a year. But as soon as we want to, we want to get rid of you, it's over. I don't understand that. That's, what, that's what's been baffling me. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is like if you're LSU and you don't guarantee your contract, but Alabama is guaranteeing Nick Saban's, you're not going to win, 
right? And even if there are, you know, that's an opening that's not going to come. That's a bad example. Say it's Auburn, right? And Auburn is guaranteeing it. I think what would have to happen is like the schools in those power positions and in those power conferences would have to say like, hey, we we coming to our conference is a selling point enough. It's a pleasure. We're going yeah. to adjust, right? They kind of have to be on the same page and say we're going to adjust how we approach contracts to reflect that we genuinely believe that you know, our con our conference and being a coach here is worth enough, you know, and maybe the bios get adjusted where if you get canned halfway through the season, you know, you get sure. finished out through the end of the year. I don't think things like that are unreasonable, but guaranteeing, you know, four extra years of a gig, right? Like Coach O got a six-year extension Nuts. after the 2019 championship game and we're two seasons in and he's now got four full years of an exceedingly, you know, high salary coming his way. Like it's, there's just, it's, it's just not right. And it's not sustainable for, for the schools who are the LSUs of the world. But if you want to compete, you have to do that and you have to try and offer comparable salaries. And I was talking with someone the other week and, you know, they, we were talking about this exact topic and buyouts and whatnot. And they said something interesting that like, if you think about it, college athletics is the only sport where the coaches are making 10, 20, 30 fold what the athletes are making. But if you look at the salaries of NBA coaches versus an NBA player, the players are making far more money. And I'm not, I, I'm not saying that I'm advocating for, you know, pay for playing college athletics and athletes to be actually compensated as employees. I think that's a whole different discussion to be had. But it's just the concept of like, there's so much money being paid to these college coaches and so much being guaranteed to them while their athletes make no money. And even with NIL, you know, their athletes are, are having to add more responsibilities into their week and into their workload to make a fraction of what their coaches are getting paid. It's just the whole system, I think, needs some some reevaluation. There's no question. We're going to keep arguing about this for, for years and years. By the way, Steve Kerr, $8 million a year. Steph Curry, $53 million a year. <laughs> yep. so it's good to turn yep. pro in men's sports. This is great. You're the best. How are things going at Sportico? Everything good? Everything is good. Yeah. Everything is good. Loving We've got the, some cool uh, events coming up. Yeah. If, uh, you know, tune on in. You got it. She's underscore M Karen on Twitter. You can find her at sportico.com. Emily, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right, Scott, a little multi-sport action today. Let's, uh, let's start with the NBA. Monday was the deadline to lock in rookie extensions for the 2018 first round class. Obviously that kicked off the regular season. Then last night with Bucks, Nets, Lakers, Warriors, we're not going to break down Steph Curry's game analysis. That's for other shows, but we are going to talk about some of these rookie extensions I guess let's start with the ones that didn't happen because I feel like when the number one pick doesn't get the extension, you have to start there. Any thoughts? I think it's similar to the Baker from Mayfield conversation we've been having. Mm, nice. I, I think, I think Phoenix is probably slow playing this. Let's see if we can get another year out of what we saw last year with Aiton. And if that's the case, then they still have his right. So they can sign him at the free agent. Uh, in July. So I think this is going to be another prove it year. Uh, let's see, you know, last year, maybe he played because he knew the contract extension was coming up. Let's see if he can do it again, one more year. Um, and it, from everything that I've heard, it was, he wanted the max Phoenix did not want to give him the max and wherever it is in between there. Um, so I, I think as a whole, Phoenix is slow playing this, and, and they want to see what's going to happen this season. Could it be just that the owner's pretty cheap? That too. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going the high road, thinking maybe they just want to see one more year, but it could be that he is cheap. But if you go to that route, they did re-sign Chris Paul. They yep. did do two other extensions yep. that are not eaten. So they are paying players. It, Do you agree with the Landry Shamit extension, though? Yes, for the fact of what I said last time I was on. They're, they're going to extend these players if they feel that they have any sort of upside in the long term because they know they can flip them again. So the fact that they locked them down – can't be traded for another year, but the fact that he is extended 
they have the rights. And if he does work out gangbusters, that's just someone that they could just potentially it, flip. It, I mean, you got Chris Paul campaign and Landry Shaman now under healthy contracts on this team. That That's not a recipe to win this year, in my opinion. Well, in the Shamit deal, it came out four for 42 and a half in for the whole term, but it's really only 19.75 guaranteed at signing. Okay. So it's really only a two-year deal because the third year is a non-guaranteed salary, and then the fourth year is a club option slash non-guaranteed salary. So it's really fluff, only huh? a two-year <laughs> A lot of fluff in this deal. Right. Okay. And, and I guess to a certain extent, you, you sort of – uh, Chris Paul as well. That Isn't it the Chris 26. Paul deal too, Scott? That was like a you know yep. that was pumped as this big four year deal. It's not even close right. to that, right? It's a front loaded, Correct. nothing on the back end deal. Yeah, what we're seeing is um, a lot of team friendly deals of recent, where the contract is bigger than it may end up being in the end. Mm. It's getting more NFL every single day. More incentives, more injury bonuses, more. <laughs> More yep. fluff on the back ends. It's feeling a lot like 2010 NFL to me, if I had to say it out loud. Uh, what else, Scott? Any other players that you thought were going to get locked in that didn't? Uh, so Marvin Bagley III in Sacramento Ooh. did not get one. He was the second pick in the draft. So you have your first and your second that didn't get extensions. Marvin Bagley, I wasn't have, expecting. Have you heard the news get... on this, though? I have not. He is pissed. Oh, wait. Yes, I did. Okay, I did. So his that. agent basically came yep. out and said he's not playing anymore. He's pulling right. an Anthony Davis on this Sacramento team saying uh, the front office doesn't know what the hell they're doing around here. You know, how the how, how do you not even approach this guy for the contract extension? Yeah. Um, you know, he it's he's been very inconsistent on the court. There's no question about it. And I'm not sure he's in the right situation from a basketball standpoint as it is. Why isn't this just a trade request? Why is this? I deserved a contract. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I'm sure that's going to come. Well, and, yeah. But why? Why sit you're torching your value, Ben a, Simmons? Right? Well, yeah, by, I was by just going to say this here. is this is the wrong book to follow of Ben Simmons and and get fined for contract detrimental to a team and and all of that. So you, you're you're better off saying trade me and pull a, a James Harden. Obviously, Bagley is not a Harden, no. but. Um, yeah, you're right. They're they're going down the wrong road, in my opinion, in that case. He's probably going to go, though, if I had to guess. Is Colin Sexton going to be traded? It's another name that didn't get an extension. We didn't think he was going to be extended. But but that is a name that has been on the trade rumors yeah. as well. So, yeah, I, I think they want to see what they have to begin. And then, like I said last time, December 15th is sort of that magic number where most of the league is their trade restrictions are lifted from signing. So we could see uh, him move then, or that could be a a trade deadline candidate. If Cleveland is tanking once again, Um, I'm not surprised that he did not get the extension because of the rumors we've had that it, it could be a situation with Aiton in his case too. Let's see what we've got one more year with him. Um, and if we got to uh, move him, then we move him. Okay. The other names make sense to me that didn't get extended. If I had to say it out loud, Devin Chenzo's hurt and he was somewhat, you know, suppressed by the Grayson Allen acquisition and then extension yes. this, this week. So, you know, there's a lot of logic to, to a lot of the moves. Miles Bridges was, I mean, Charlotte's got just so much front court. They, they really can't tolerate anymore at this point. Uh, the extensions that did happen. Any, anybody go too high in your opinion? I know Keith was basically, you know, on the nuts with most of these numbers, to be quite honest. He uh, he had these middling bridge contracts kind of figured out a, a few weeks ago on SpotTrack.com. You know, the Herder one's probably where it should be, about 16 and change a year. Is that about right for yeah. a team that we think is going to be damn good this year? Oh, yeah. I think that's a nice contract for him. And, you know, he he fits in well. And if for some reason you have to move him, that's right. those salaries are movable. But I think it's a that's a nice Scott. Do you think that's the- a negotiating point? Do you think agents uh, are on board with that exact point right there? Like, hey, let's drop the AAV a year, you know, a mil and a half. You know, maybe we'll tack off a year too, so that you can you can redo this thing earlier than than you know we would want to normally. But there's a fifty percent chance in a year and a half we're going to have to move you. 
and we want to make it, you know, as easy for everybody to, to be involved in this trade as possible. Is that, am, am I silly in thinking agents would enjoy that, that by losing money? You know what? That's a great point. Or are you I, under I'm the impression sure. that every contract is now tradable and just make as much as you can? It's going to be able to be traded. No, seriously. You know what I mean? Like, no, I, like it, no, is it, I, I'm are any of these contracts right. too big to trade right now? I don't think they are, you know? No, any, I think of the last couple of years, any contract is tradable, even yeah. though before then we were saying 40 million is not going to get traded and that was debunked. So I think any contract is, is tradable. But for the the middle of the pack of these rookie scale extensions, I mean, it's pretty consistent as far as, you know, it's between 10 and $17 million in AAV yeah. when all is said and done. So it, it may be a, a, a talking point for an agent, but I don't know. Yeah. To be. Active. Here's one of the bigger ones. And this one could be too big at the end of the day. I think Jaron Jackson at 26.1 is high. Uh, he's a heck of a player, but I, I want to leave that part of it alone. He's just a, an example of dozens that we've seen over the past year and a half here of, of front-loaded, decreasing contracts. Right. Is there a specific reason this is happening? Because the the math in me says the cap is going up. Why would you be? Why would you be accounting from a backward standpoint on these contracts? Could be that they want to sort of crisscross with. Morant when he gets his extension to try to save stagger a little bit stack stagger the money instead of everything going up at the same rate um because he'll he'll be up next year for the extension I believe so instead of everything going up you at least have some crisscrossing and obviously they're going to be over I can't say obviously but they're most likely going to be over the cap at that point and then you're just dealing with um uh, a situation where you may have to do signing trades or whatnot. But the other thing that I'll say is because it's decreasing towards the back end of that contract, if Memphis does not tradable. like him, tradable at 23.4 on that last year. So it, it, there, there is definitely some gamesmanship in doing it. I, I personally uh, like the decreasing. If, if you can get your money up front and then towards the back end of that career um, of that extension, it's not working out and you need to move them or again, you don't know what the cap is necessarily going to do. We're assuming it's going to go up quite a bit. And then from there, and we don't know what the new CBA is going to entail. Okay. That's fair. Um, you know, the maxes are the maxes. I don't think anybody's expected otherwise from certainly Luca and Trey, uh, SGA. We've talked about him before on this, on this show, Scott, uh, we just don't know what OKC is. We don't, you know, you got to pay him because he's a real player. But how long before he's pulling a get me the hell out of here? You know, is he even that type of guy? I don't know too much about that roster, to be honest. And, you know, two, three years ago, Chris Paul came in and they were a playoff team. So is it that easy? Is it just whenever they decide that it's time to go, they can go and overpay with seven first round picks and get a couple of legit vets? I, I do because look at what happened with Phoenix. Yeah. They acquired Chris Paul and it completely changed their franchise. Obviously yeah. Chris Paul being from Oklahoma city with that trade too. But I, I think teams can see that if we make the right moves, we, we can flip on a dime if we need to, if we have the right pieces in place, I think, Oklahoma City does have some really nice pieces, young pieces, but if they can grow the right way from a player development standpoint, they may be at a point where they can pull the trigger on these and pull pull in one or two legit elite players and be back in the fold. Yeah, they got to stop building through the draft at some point. (laughs) I mean, mean, it's a a nice way to start your process, but you have to then graduate to step two of the process, which is actually trying to fill in the blanks afterwards. And they've been reluctant to do that outside of just taking on other people's garbage. Let's be honest about what they've been doing for five years here, Scott. Yeah, they're acquiring as many assets as possible to throw as many darts and hope something sticks. But if if you're going to draft that many players over the next few years, A, you're not going to have enough room on your roster for all of them. And B, if you're looking to extend them because they do hit, you're, you're looking at some crazy money down the line. Okay. 
I have a feeling that how it's going to get done is they're going to be the third team in a massive trade. That's my guess. Two teams that want to swap superstars. Mm-hmm. And there's so many moving pieces that they need another team to come in and take on two legit vets, like B prospect veterans. And that's how Oklahoma City gets this done. And then they swap, you know, swap three or four first rounders around there too. I don't think it'll be as easy as we're going to take this guy for because they don't have salaries, first of all, to go and trade for big time players right now. They don't have matching salaries for the most part. Right. So they're going to have to be creative. And I think it's going to be something along those lines, which is good news for us because that's always fun to track. Anything else from a basketball standpoint? We don't have to get into the season too much here. We kind of made our picks. Looks like Milwaukee's outstanding, even though they're not yes. full strength yet. Looks like the the Lakers are discombobulated, which everybody in the world assumed they were going to be out of the gate. That is why I said I'm I'm holding off on my uh, until at least late December, January, when things can gel right. a little bit. It takes time. Don't even care it about it until it's Christmas. That's how the NBA wants you to be. So it's going to take some time. Um, and, and I saw I, I I saw an interesting stat this morning. LeBron's first game with the Lakers, they lost. Anthony Davis's first game with the Lakers, they lost. And Russell Westbrook's first game, they lost. So take it for what it's worth, but I found that kind of interesting. Okay. Ready to talk some hockey? When's sure. the last time you've heard either anybody say that to you? I don't know. Been uh, a while. Um, look, the hockey's kind of two weeks in here. They spent a lot of money this offseason, these NHL teams. It was a bit uncharacteristic. They, they kind of breezed over a new CBA. They basically just pushed it down the line. They basically restructured versus, versus ripping it up and starting over on a new contract. They basically just said, let's just hold off. We want to keep hockey playing right now. Everybody's relatively happy. We don't really need to change you know, a ton right now. So let's just keep playing hockey. And I think teams responded this year with a lot, a lot of big contracts, a lot of spending. The Florida Panthers were your top spenders at... 164 million and change this offseason. By the way, they're three and zero. The number two spender was the Edmonton Oilers at 160 million. By the way, they're three and zero. The number three team was the expansion team, which you can imagine they have to spend all of their money. They had nothing under the pocket. So uh, we'll see how Seattle can deal. Although that team, they're not going to have the magic fairy dust that the Golden Knights did in Vegas when uh, when the NHL didn't really know how to handle an expansion draft yet. Right, and they kind of you know game the system a little bit. It seems like Seattle is going to be near the bottom of this pack, at least for one year until they have more time to kind of figure it out, which is honestly how it should be. I mean, you want to generate, generate interest in the new team, but they shouldn't be winning Stanley cups in year one. That's for darn sure. Um, the teams that are all in Tampa Bay, Calgary, and the jets in terms of payroll right now, Scott, does any of that surprise you? I mean, I know you're not a big NHL follower, but Where's the New Yorks? Where's the LAs? Where's the Chicago's? What's different in this league specifically? And I could no, no, I, I guess the NBA has some of this because the Knicks went all the way down to the bottom at some point. And I guess the Clippers did for a, a couple of years there as well, but not long term. The difference between this sport specifically is there, it doesn't matter what market you're in. If you're bad, they'll go all the way down to the bottom. Standings, payroll, everything. They'll take it right down to the bottom. There's no rebuilding on the fly for most of these franchises, regardless of where they are and how much money their ownership has. It's a very on-button, off-button type sport from a professional standpoint Mm -hmm. because they just can't bleed money in this league. There's not enough to go around, unfortunately, because of the TV situation. But that's bad for the sport. It's bad it for this. You can say, and we've said it a lot, we've had guests come on and say that what the Dodgers are doing at $250 million of payroll is unfair to the Baltimore Orioles, to the Tampa Bay Rays, et cetera. But it's really good for baseball <laughs> to have the Dodgers playing in early November. It's really good for baseball, and it's really good for baseball to have big contracts in big markets. I'm a little reluctant to say that that's not what the NHL is anymore. In fact... Tampa Bay is a dynasty. They're a legitimate dynasty in the sport right now to, to the effects of Pittsburgh in the, in the early Crosby Malkin years. Right. How many people even know that they're not even the most popular team in their freaking city because Tom Brady came to town and won a Super Bowl last year. The, the lightning won like a month before that. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. And back to back. And, and back then to went back. back to back and kind of game the system with the long-term injury reserve. There was so much fascination with this team and there's tons of star power. 
And now they're the highest payroll by $55 million. They are the Dodgers of, of the NHL right now. It's crazy. And I don't know how much buzz they're getting because they're in Tampa, because they're a Florida hockey team, and because they're not a major market for, for many of sports, even though Tom Brady has certainly elevated that platform there. Just any thoughts on this? Does hockey need Toronto, New York, Chicago, L.A. to be all in all the time, sort of like we've had that conversation with baseball? Yes, I think so. Yeah. You, you, you do need the, the eyeballs on those big teams, like, like the Dodgers, like the Yankees, like the Red Sox, you know, you, you, to a certain extent, you want the fans to, for lack of a better word, hate those teams because no, that's good. people, people will want to watch them to lose. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to get those eyeballs on those teams. If the Rangers were there, you're going to get more people that don't like the Rangers. They're going to watch because they want to see them lose. Um, because they, they, because they overpay, because they're flashy, because they're superstar power. That's right. All that's built into the cake, right? And the, the superstars that, that you can remember are the Crosby's, the Malkins, the, you know, uh, the, the Ovechkins. And those guys are on the back ends of their careers, almost, almost done here. So obviously McDavid is the next man up and, but he's in Edmonton and how many eyeballs are watching Edmonton during the season? And is he, you know, people, people watched to hate Crosby. You know, as a Sabres fan, as a Sabres fan, we hated Pittsburgh Penguins. We hated playing them. We did not like playing against Crosby and Malkin and all that. And and it, it fosters and you want to watch that because of that rivalry, that that quote unquote hate that they I keep literally saying. had Wednesday night rivalry week. That right. was the, wasn't that how they branded Wednesday night hockey rivalry night or whatever. That, yeah, that's literally so. what the league was asking for. They're they're asking for exactly what you're saying, Scott. Out loud, they were they've been trying to do this, except the Rangers are 24th in payroll. The Montreal Canadiens are 25th. The Chicago Blackhawks are 26th. The Detroit Red Wings, hockey freaking town, is 30th. Yes. Come on. ESPN's got to be miserable so, about this. Can, miserable because they finally I? jump back in the pool. And thank God Edmonton spent this offseason for McDavid. Because otherwise, I, I'd be sitting here in front of a microphone saying, you, it's time for you to get in front of a microphone and get the hell out of there. You gave it a good run. You extended with them. You gave them years to build around you. Now, look, they're they're a deep playoff team now, so they're a good team. They figured it out. But if they hadn't, if this was Mike Trout, get in front of a microphone and get out of town. Like this, the league relies on him specifically right now to carry a lot of the weight. And thank God Edmonton is spending. So, but but you know, L.A. twenty first. It's just all bad. You've got major, major markets in the 20s and the 30s in this league right now, and I don't know what to do about that. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I was, let me flip a question back on you. Do you think them being a super hard cap really has affected them with the problem uh, is how this. sports has grown? Yeah, I know what you're thinking, like more of like the NBA. Do they go soft with the tax and let the big guys spend? Well, the problem is this, Scott. They really just don't have the money. I don't, I don't even think the Rangers would spend $200 million if they could. I don't. Is that because of the player prospects that are out there just aren't worth that much money right now? Or is it from a eyeball standpoint where the, you know, and this is why they went to ESPN. Do you think, do you think that they went to the ESPNs to put the cart before the horse so that no question. the TV money is there? And they push that CBA back so that let's see what our revenue could be. And then going into the CBA, they can restructure the CBA accordingly based on that money. Yes, that's exactly what has to happen. They have to they have to prove to themselves that they can grow under the major networks again. They have to prove to themselves that teams will start to spend when when that carrot is dangling in front of them, which is what they're doing right now, as, you, as you're alluding to. They're, they're dangling the carrot to say, look, it, we're going to go. We're going to push the gas pedal down here, but you have to, to have to follow suit. 
And I understand that some of the teams I referenced at the bottom, they're in their rebuilding phase. They're, they're going to be ramping up for that, what you're talking about. But current CBA has a max salary. You can only have a max percentage of the, of the overall hard cap. So when Connor McDavid signed his contract, he was X percentage of the CBA. And he remains that way because it's an AAV average salary type league. Connor McDavid was the highest paid player in the league. What was it? Three, four straight years? I have it here somewhere. Since 2018, he's been the highest pay, average paid player in, in hockey at $12.5 million. It hasn't moved an inch. Okay? And that's the same for all the positions. He's the highest paid player. Eric Carlson's the highest paid defensive player at 11.5, a million under that. He's been that way since 2019. And the, and the goalie, 10.5 million, has been that way since 2018, Carey Price. And he's not even playing hockey right now. So you're not getting that next man up at all in hockey, not even close. A, because the cap's not rising and everything's tied to the cap. And B, just because we're not, we don't have that kind of star power right now. Every, everybody's taking nine, 10 million a year because you have to fit under this, this average salary model. And there's no leeway. It's a hard cap. Teams are trying to squish 30 players into this thing, give or take. And you've got to come down on your price. It's, it's an unfortunate situation for the entire sport. But, you know, you and I say it all the time, money sells, <laughs> money sells. Part of the reason that we love watching the Lakers or the, or the Warriors is we know that Steph Curry makes 53 million a year now, Scott. That's what his next contract looks like. Right. No, the knowledge of that gives you something in the back of your mind as you're watching these players play sports. It's not even a, a thought with hockey. And maybe some people love it that way. And I totally understand that. But from a marketability standpoint, it's hurting. Yeah, I agree. If you don't have the names out there that are the the in-house names that you bring up and, and everyone knows that name, I mean, yeah. you you can mention LeBron, Steph, uh, you know, that people know who those people are, not just because of being on advertisements. They're just a, they're a brand in themselves. And the NHL, I think we're at a point where they need to start branding themselves better from their player's standpoint uh, to, to be who, who, who is that name? I, I, I bet you uh, if I was to ask my wife or some people around me, name five people in the NHL, they may have a hard time naming <laughs> or they're going to name the ones that are towards the back end of their career, like the Crosby, Ovechkins and those. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if they would know a, a newer player, um, to be the face of the franchise, uh, face of the league. Let's finish on this. Well, let, let me give you this first. United. Well, I, 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 pulled, I pulled up the valuations that Sportico just released too. Oh, if you want to run through, well, let's get to there too. It's, it's a big Sportico day. Um, you and I talk long contracts all the time. The NHL is the king. They are the king now, um, and it's because of the average salary, because of the AV situation, they have to stretch out as much as possible. Similar to the baseball tax payroll. You've got the numbers in front of you. Which one of these numbers stands out the most to you? So I broke it down by contracts oh, that are easy. five plus years, six plus years, seven plus years, eight plus years, and 10 plus years. Yeah. Eight, eight plus years. 68. There are 68 <laughs> players on an active contract that is eight plus years long. That's nuts. That's two per team. That is two per team, Scott. That is nuts. <laughs> How about the fact that there's six players with 10 plus years? Who yeah. are those six? You, you wouldn't even know half the six players because they're from forever ago and still trying to finish out their contract. It, it, it's a rough situation right now. There's 112 players on seven plus year contracts. 112. That is over three per team. That's just what's happening when you're good. And that's part of the problem too. And I'm not going to get into this again. We talk about it a lot. You know, we'll make the basketball reference here. When you're locked into seven and eight year contracts and you're not a big trade league, which the NHL is for one day, <laughs> let's be perfectly frank. Their yeah, trade deadlines are decent. They've been worse and worse the past couple of years. They've been overhyped. But, and, and by the way, superstars never move at the deadline. Never. It's generally your B prospects are below and first round picks. But when you're locked into seven and eight year contracts, you're a ghost from a transactional standpoint, a ghost. The only time we hear about you in, on, the, on the transaction wire is if you've been suspended, if you hit the IR, you're a ghost. Nothing's happening to you. So you've got to market yourself completely on the ice or through a, a terrible commercial in your hometown. That, that's how it works. It's just such a dead sport 
in season because there's there's a lack of this. There's no restructuring. There's no there's waivers and buyouts have a small window, so there's very transactional you know movement at that point. It's just a very structured, boring transactional league, and that doesn't help because no, it does. Everybody's looking for a tweet, for a soundbite, for a quick hit at six a.m. for the morning radio show, and the NHL has to be manufactured. They're never handing you something to work with. That's why analytics have been so big in this sport because analysts and and radio people and experts needed more to grasp onto with this thing. There's just nothing hanging there for the NHL to give us. I hate this. I wish Connor McDavid took one-year contracts for the rest of his career and and there was always an unknown about what's going to where he's going to go, how much he's going to make. I wish that could be the case because it would really help the league as crazy as that sounds. Uh, but to me that's the biggest problem is that these long contracts stretch out boring phases for this sport with their superstars. And there's no talking about them unless they do something incredible on the ice. That's a really hard sell. Yeah, that's a a very hard sell because look at the, look at the, uh, like you said, the NBA, the, the, the movement that happens. I mean, we see it every day. A, a, A trade happens in, you know, everyone flocks towards that or wants to know or trade machine. We talked about that with baseball a couple of weeks ago with just baseball need matching salaries or anything like that to foster more of a, a trade machine type thing. You know, it, NHL doesn't, it, you're right. The, the lack of movement means there's a lack of conversation about the league and they're, they're just a, a second thought, which is why in this country, they're four, fourth on this major sports list, maybe getting even close to fifth with MLS growing as much as it has. Go ahead. Take it on. Transition over to Sportico's valuations. Can I guess who the top couple are? I haven't looked yet. I haven't opened the link yet. Yeah. I, I bet you, you could guess. You may be able to get the top five. Right, Toronto. Maybe I can't. Except how much Canada's right. involved here? Toronto's definitely number one. All right. So There's if the Cowboys another- are 6 billion, are the Toronto Maple Leafs even three? Are they two and a half? Not even. Two, two, two. and change? It's two. Whew. Man, oh man. Okay. Toronto. There's one other Canadian team in the top five. Okay, so that's Montreal. Yep, they're third. So the Rangers then. Rangers are number two. Yeah. Now it gets tough, right? Both are big names. Both have won championships within the last mm, 15 years, I think. 15? So Pittsburgh, Chicago? Chicago. Not Pittsburgh. Mm-mm. Wow. I mean, Dallas has, Washington has. Is it Washington? Maybe Boston. It's Boston. Oh, it is Boston. Yeah, Boston has won in the past or maybe lost. Yeah, they've, they've been there. Boston. Yeah, they're fifth. Chicago's fourth. Okay. So so Toronto's at 2 billion. New York Rangers are 1.87 billion. Okay. Montreal 1.58 billion. Wow. Chicago 1.36 and then Boston 1.31. What's the drop off? Take me all the way down. To the very end. Mm-hmm. You want to guess who's at the very bottom? Is it Buffalo? It is not. I, I was surprised. Buffalo is actually six from the bottom. It's, I mean, Arizona, Florida. Air, Arizona. Yeah. Yep, Arizona. Arizona's at the bottom at 410 million. And then Florida Panthers, 520 million. And then Columbus Blue Jackets. Where is Tampa Bay? Where is this perennial? Uh, championship team now uh just below the middle okay that that had to have improved if i had They're to at guess. 800 805 million um and this is the first time sportico has put out their nhl right valuation so i don't have anything to compare with what they do but again their their valuations include you know stadium right. technology everything under the sun for the team that they've been able to accumulate so they're right below halfway about huh 
By the way, Boston, Boston's 16th in spending this year. So you give me the top five again. Toronto, Toronto New on. York Rangers. Hold on. Toronto's 14th. The Rangers are 24th. Keep going. Montreal. Montreal. 25th. Chicago. 26th. Boston. Four, 16th. Then LA 6th. 21st. That's what you know your major franchises are doing this year yeah, in terms they, of spending. Yeah, they there's those, exhibit those A, B, and C with what's wrong with hockey right now, and ESPN should be pissed off. Yeah, they should be pissed yeah. off. And, and if you're the rest of the league, Seattle Kraken come in, they're valued just above half, and then the Vegas Golden Knights, who have been in for a couple years now, they're just above Seattle. Hmm. So you have. The two franchises that you've expanded in have valuations that are above half of your league. A lot of potential in that Seattle market. I get it. There's a lot of money hanging there. I do too. But if you're at the bottom, you know, what what does that say to your franchise? Maybe maybe Facebook's changing its name to Kraken. Maybe that's part of the valuation, huh? Yeah. It's topical. (laughs) Good stuff, man. All right. All right. My thanks to The Athletic. Check out theathletic.com slash spot track for 40% off your first year subscription. And of course, Balanced Bridge Funding. Visit balancedbridge.com. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Track Podcast. 